I think the the business case becomes far more promising and frankly safer if you're able to get to L4 autonomy and it doesn't feel to us like there's a path otherwise um, uh, to really solve this problem. Hello and welcome to the Autonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director for uh, Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the co-host of the No Parking Podcast, very amused by Ed's new introduction of himself. And? And Alex was so distracted thinking about Ed's new job, he failed his cue. I'm Kirsten Korosek, senior reporter at TechCrunch. And today we have a really exciting guest. We have Boris Softman, who is Waymo's engineering director and head of trucking, uh, but also the C- the former CEO and co-founder of Anki Robotics. So we're very excited to have you here, Boris. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me on. No one is as excited as I am because I can see this direct thread from Waymo trucking all the way back through Anki. And I, well, you have kids, right? Right. Uh, I do. I do. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. All right. So I have an infant daughter. So before you had kids, was it? did you dream of building really cool small robots that you could use to teach kids, your own kids someday, how robots work? Yeah, I think uh, we were all kids at heart. Uh, you know, we, we started uh, Anki out of uh, graduate school at Carnegie Mellon. And in a lot of ways, there's uh, similarities in the foundations of what we were using for entertainment and education, they carry over into more advanced applications. And that was always uh, the path that we were um, were taking where um, the fundamentals were, uh, in a lot of ways, um, uh, you know, the roots of understanding the environment, interacting intelligently, and pushing complexity towards software. Um, and we just happened to use entertainment as a stepping stone. So before you founded Anki, and yes, we're going to talk about Waymo Trucking. I know that's why you're here. But before you founded Anki, did you did you think that you were going to in, inevitably in, in someday lead a full size real world autonomous trucking program, <laughs> or was the dream to go into these little toys that educate the next generation of roboticists? Yeah, it's funny. So I, you know, I went to graduate school at CMU right during the like uh, this this phase that catalyzed a lot of this uh, autonomous uh, vehicle work, and so all of these. It's such a small world where all a lot of the leads of all these teams are actually like old colleagues of ours, and that's the area that got me into robotics in the first place. So my PhD was on autonomous driving. It happened to be these like massive off-road vehicles that would navigate forests and unstructured environments, but it was a lot of the early work um, uh, that kind of our, the colleagues and, and I were working on in perception and planning and so forth. And I'd say it was probably a fork in the road that if we hadn't started um, uh, Anki and gone down a consumer robotics path, I think there's a very good chance I probably would have followed uh, some of uh, s- some of our old friends and colleagues in the early days of Waymo. So I'd always had a top of mind and didn't think that there was a path necessarily to reconnect, but I was very excited to find out that there was. Um, when I, I'm not sure when you were at um, CMU, but did you uh, end up participating at all in the DARPA Grand Challenges, or was that did that uh, predate your time there? Uh, no, it started uh, around kind of the later parts of my time there. Um, I ended up not working on the uh, Grand Challenges, but a large project that was DARPA funded for off-road autonomous navigation, um, and so it included a lot of the same. Uh, folks that kind of board between the projects, but it was more focused on off-road navigation. Can you just describe what 
that is. We, we hear so much about the DARPA grand challenges. We don't really hear about some of these other DARPA funded projects. So I was just wondering, what, what were you working on in terms of off-road navigation? And has anything that you worked on there either that, uh, informed some of your work that you're doing over at Waymo? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, off-road, uh, it was off-road in the sense that um, it was totally unstructured environments. Um, and so instead of the structure of a road and the rules of a road, it was um, you imagine your vehicle getting placed uh, in an outdoor environment, you know, kind of forest, uh, uh, open plains, uh, ditches, rocks, like complex vegetation. You got to get to a goal uh, 10, 15 kilometers away. Um, and so, uh, in a lot of ways, um, it adds complexity because uh, instead of just be uh, instead of just a the problem of working, you drive where you're 100 safe. You have like variability in safety, uh, and you have to interpret much more robustly the types of vegetation you have, what se- what risk that poses to your sensor pod. Um, and so, a lot of the early work in perception and planning um, uh, from that project both the code base uh, as well as the people and the learnings kind of carried over where um, you, know, you guys are probably familiar with, uh, you know, Drew Bagnell was one of the co-founders of Aurora was on that project. Tony Stentz was my, so Tony and Drew were my PhD advisors. And so um, a lot of that team is now at Uber at Aurora at Waymo. Um, and so there's a lot of overlap there um, and the foundations of how do you take 3D sensor data, for example, and robustly try to interpret an environment, classify objects, understand how to navigate the world, the path planning algorithms. Um, uh, how do you think about costs and safety and rewards? A lot has changed, but the early foundations were developed actually not even in an urban challenge. A lot of it actually goes back to like the 90s where you have NASA and um, and other kind of government agencies funding a lot of the early work in autonomous driving. Um, what DARPA uh, did with the Urban and Grand Challenges was just catalyze it and start to um, add a giant amount of visibility onto it and a lot more investment and teams that started pushing on it. And so it was an ex- exciting combination of um, a lot of that work leading up to it. So as as you've sort of discussed here, um, you know, the fascinating thing about autonomous technology is and, and robotics, I guess, in general, is like there are so many different there's, – there's sort of the core technology, but there's so many different – applications for it and you know defense is interested in big vehicles and go off road and and you know there's there's opportunities in entertainment and toys and things like that to to sort of spark you know new generations of interest in in this stuff and and then of course there's there's trucking um and you know even though the underlying technologies as you say are all sort of the same across these each of these sort of does take a very targeted approach because you're looking at a, a specific economic opportunity or, or capability that you're developing for DARPA. And I guess DARPA is going to probably fund more sort of generalized applications. And when you're in business, you have to really zero in on a specific opportunity. So um, let's take that to, to Waymo uh, Trucking and Waymo Via. Sort of what is that that opportunity that you're specifically looking at here to sort of apply this, this technology at? Yeah, and you're right. There's a giant um, jump uh, in terms of uh, you know complexity and rigor that that goes into actually trying to make a business out of these technologies. Um, and particularly when you have something as complex and safety critical as uh, as autonomous driving. Um, so w- Waymo obviously started uh, over ten years ago, uh, focused on autonomous driving, and uh, uh, the dominant focus was the consumer side of autonomous driving. How do you get cars? For transportation and uh, moving people around uh, to be reliable, efficient, uh, safe, uh, and um, uh, and robust. Uh, Waymo Via is the uh, other arm of Waymo that instead of people transports 
goods. Um, and so trucking is a huge component of that where you're doing uh, long haul uh, transport of, uh, uh, of goods um, across uh, uh, a longer distance. Um, and, and so this is a branch of um, Waymo and investment Waymo that started uh, more recently. Uh, but what's exciting is that if you, uh, if you think of the foundations of driving and what makes driving uh, complex and the technical foundations of what allows you to solve it, um, uh, if you believe that there's fundamentals that carry over across all domains and across all vehicles, then you would actually uh, look at Waymo's record over the last 10 years and look at that as a huge advantage in terms of uh, its ability to go into trucking and apply a lot of these building blocks into a new domain. And I definitely, uh, that's something that, uh, especially as we were, um, a lot of us were joining about a year ago, uh, that was very, very top of mind. And I actually uh, do very strongly believe that that is the case where a lot of the fundamental technologies that Waymo's developed are not about driving a car, they're about the foundations of sensing the environment, um, uh, the perception of the world around you. How do you, uh, how do you plan? How do you simulate? How do you think about safety frameworks? Um, and so Waymo Via, um, is, uh, the branch of Waymo that is looking to apply these technologies that go towards a Waymo driver to the problems of goods transportation. And, uh, in the case here, uh, trucking, where instead of driving a car, we are driving a, uh, uh, a class eight, uh, truck. Um, and even though the domains are slightly different and the focus is different, you have a lot of the same foundations that carry over uh, in terms of how do you solve this problem. Uh, and but obviously the speeds of a, of a class eight truck on you know, any almost any highway are a lot higher than um, than an autonomous vehicle in an urban environment. So what uh, what have you been using in terms for long range sensing? You know what have you done work wise on on lidar and camera to be able to drive. 55, 65, I guess, 70 miles an hour in some places? Yeah, and you're, you're right, Alex. Uh, um, you look at, uh, er, uh, you look at con you know, consumer transportation on, on surface streets and you look at highway driving, particularly with a truck, um, you have uh, different advantages and disadvantages in terms of the complexity of the problem. Uh, in the case of a truck driving uh, on, a, uh, on a freeway and where you do go up to 65, 70 miles an hour, um, and potentially have 80,000 pounds uh, of total weight, uh, you have a lot of uh, different requirements in terms of the range of sensing and the, uh, you know, the, um, the distances at which you need to react to objects. And so uh, in the case of trucks, this is where um, we employ a full suite of sensors. Um, uh, and these are all the same sensors that we use uh, in terms of foundational technologies across all of our vehicles. You have LiDAR, you have radar, you have camera, um, uh, IMUs, and you have a combination of all of these inputs that allow you to understand the environment. In the case of trucking, where you very much need to push the perception range past 300 meters away and moving onwards towards 400 meters plus because of the response time that you require, that pushes more burden onto uh, cameras as one of the dominant sensors for the long-range um, perception problem. Um, uh, and uh, as you get closer, you start being able to fuse um, the sensors in a much more um, robust fashion. Um, but uh, in the case of highway driving, we do leverage uh, camera perception much more heavily than we might in uh, closer range um, uh, surface street driving, where the LIDAR, uh, the LIDAR capability is so robust that you can uh, take advantage of all the strengths of that sensor uh, in the situations you might find at slower speeds. Uh, I had a question about the, the camera piece. Is, 
are, is Waymo, I, I'm assuming Waymo must be doing some development in house um, on, on to push the, the capabilities of camera tech forward. Um, is for, so first of all, is that what Waymo is doing or are they partnering with someone else? But is it the trucking program that has pushed this need for um, working on technological advancements of cameras? And I, and I'm also curious, I know I'm piling on here. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious, though, just in general, just giving um, myself and our audience an idea of how much more advancement and innovation can happen in cameras in general, because it has seemed like that is an opportunity, um, but it's not clear of how much farther we can go with that. Yeah, very good question. Um, so obviously, it's uh, been pretty well reported on how Waymo's completely redesigned the LiDAR, uh, uh, both for cost and capability, where there was an understanding pretty early on that the the needs that we had for uh, solving the problems we needed to solve, there just wasn't enough flexibility and granularity of control that um, externally available sensors provided us. Uh, to some degree, the same thing applies to radar and cameras. Uh, with cameras, I'd say there's probably more foundations that able, you're able to reuse in terms of subcomponents and uh, elements of, of uh, elements that go into a camera. But a lot of the work goes towards um, not just the common uh, dimensions like resolution, but some of the things that become incredibly important for machine learning algorithms to be able to work reliably on a camera. So, for example, uh, consistency of um uh, exposure and, and visibility, which is a combination of both the hardware and the software, where independent of whether you're driving at night or you're driving in bright sunlight, you have the combinations of cameras and sensors and, and lenses and details that fall into them in order to be able to understand the environment and interpret it consistently. Um, and so that's that's been a deep focus to make sure that everything we've learned in the last 10 years of autonomous driving, um, especially now that we're pushing it in a slightly different fashion for trucking, we can take those learnings and, and pipe them into this challenge. Um, the nice thing is, is that uh, we're sharing a common technology base and contributing to it both from the consumer transportation and the goods transportation side. And so a lot of the work that we're doing on trucking is actually pushing the foundations um, of the core tech stack. And sometimes we're pushing on problems first that will actually become very useful for the car side of the business um, down the road when we start uh, driving much more aggressively on freeways and dealing with some of the situations that we have to encounter potentially first as a, as a, as a trucking application. So Waymo recently unveiled its its fifth generation uh, hardware stack, uh, sensor stack, and or suite, I should say. Um, and I'm wondering, and there's a lot of cameras. There's like over twenty, I want to say twenty three, twenty four, yeah. something like that. A lot of cameras. I wonder, are these things related? And 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 I guess sort of ancillary to that is, you know, do do you envision sort of trucks and 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 um, other you know robo taxi vehicles uh, using the same fundamental stacks? I mean, obviously the, the core technology is carries across, but how much differentiation does there need to be on the hardware side between those two things? Yeah, we, we thought a lot about this. Uh, so fundamentally, you want to use the same building box because if you develop, you know, developing custom sensors just for a particular application, sometimes it was warranted, but it's very expensive. Same thing with compute, where there's so much work that goes into the operating system of how an autonomous vehicle has to drive, that if you're able to leverage the same compute, then you can leverage a giant amount of software that's built on top of it in order to get the most value out of it. Um, now, the permutations and the ways in which you use it can be very different. And so in the case of a truck, we use more sensors. And so um, 
you know, roughly 2x the sensors, uh, uh, you know, depending on which sensor, um, in order to get better coverage and deal with some of the unique challenges and blind spots that happen on a truck that you would not see on a car. Um, one one uh, very obvious example is if you see our trucks driving around uh, on a street, you actually see um, the main LIDAR that you see as a cone on the top of a vehicle is actually has a truck has two of them, one on each side of the truck, kind of approximately where the mirrors uh, uh, would lie. And that's actually very intentional because if you put just like one on the dome, you'd create a giant blind spot because the trailer's higher than the cabin and you'd have this giant triangle off to the sides and have a horrendous blind spot off of your main uh, sensor. And so then you would push a giant amount of complexity into the software and potentially, you know, one that has uncertainty to how you solve these problems uh, because of that blind spot. And so by duplicating the main LIDAR and having one on each side uh, and with the same logic for other types of sensors, you eliminate almost the entire blind spot except for what's directly, you know, potentially behind you. Um, and now you can leverage uh, far more directly the core perception system that's been developed uh, and can be shared in a much deeper degree across both um, vehicle platforms uh, and reduce significantly the amount of unique uh, challenges you have to solve. Now, obviously, there's still a huge amount of unique challenges that happen where you still have moving blind spots when you turn and you have distance challenges and occlusions and things like that. But by taking a little bit more complexity on the mechanical front, by using the same building blocks, we're actually able to reduce the complexity a lot and leverage a lot of the work that's already been developed over the last uh, uh, last decade. Um, so it's it's a bit of a balancing act. And usually, um, if you can take on more complexity mechanically and save complexity in software, that's a good trade-off uh, because that usually takes longer to develop. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So uh, every time I get into a scrap on the internet about autonomous vehicles, a, uh, I'm, a, I'm assaulted by an army of Tesla fanboys, <laughs> and I'm not the only one. Uh, I, I, I have a Tesla. I enjoy it. I think it's very entertaining and, and wonderful vehicle. Um, and I'm constantly having to, to make the argument as to why LiDAR makes sense. Um, the argument used uh, uh, on behalf of a non-LiDAR approach is humans only have two eyes, and it works fine. And then the counter argument is, but they have millions of years of evolution behind them. And if your life depends on it, why wouldn't you use all the sensors? What do you say to people who say, oh, your LIDAR, not necessary. And it's not even necessary on a truck. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, 
Right. These have been entertaining conversation. I've, I've, I've followed some of them. And uh, it's funny, it feels like this has been going on for better part of a decade. Uh, so here's what, first of all, like the argument that just because a human can do it, why can't we? Um, that's a bit flawed because we're not yet at a point where you have like generalizable AI where there's plenty of things that a human can do that we can't do. And if you don't structure the problem in a different way and represent it with constraints that are, like help you solve it, then you're just fundamentally not gonna be able to reach the same level of capability as a human. There's plenty of situations where um, like understanding a scene with all the context involved is still beyond the reach of a uh, AI program using just, a, um, just an image. Um, what LiDAR does is it provides incredibly valuable information that bypasses um, some of the hardest uh, capabilities of a human to replicate. Uh, with AI, um, things like um, understanding the subtleties of a scene and getting really uh, uh, precise understanding of positions, relative positions of objects, um, dealing with variability of things like lighting and sunlight and uh, kind of the last like fraction of a percent of detail of a problem that in a problem like autonomous driving ends up being the blocker and you being able to deploy fully without a human. Um, you know, for us, uh, LiDAR doesn't solve every single problem, and there's still plenty of situations where we rely on a fusion of data, um, you know, with all the other types of sensors, or um, in the case like we talked about with long-range perception, you have to lean more heavily into something like camera. Um, but what a LiDAR does is it gives you a really precise 3D understanding of an environment, which we have found to be one of the most valuable uh, data inputs to allow you to reliably understand what's happening in the scene and classify it and not be nearly as variable to some of the variations that come with sunlight, perspectives, um, environmental conditions, uh, which city you're in. Um, the consistency of data from a LIDAR is just easier to interpret um, for uh, you know an algorithm and to uh, get the level of rigor and consistency um, in an autonomous vehicle that you'll need to actually fully pull a human out of a, out of a driver's seat. Um, you know, there's other situations where when the problem is better structured or when you're purely on a highway um, and you have a little bit more structure in the environment where you can lean into cameras much more heavily. Um, but for especially like after having driven as many miles as Waymo's driven in an autonomous fashion, the sort of diversity of surprises that you come across, um, you know, you you it's already hard enough to get to a, a fully uh, driverless solution handicapping yourself further by limiting yourself in one of the most capable sensing uh, capabilities feels like that just pushes out even further the uh, data which you might be able to actually get to a full L4 solution. That's a really great answer, Boris. I was expecting something a little more game-centric, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I was talking to a bunch of kids about what I do for a living at an amazing unnamed autonomous vehicle company. And um, and they, they, were, they were like, well... <laughs> Yeah, how, who could it be? I mean, who knew? And and uh, discussing the merits of lidar, and one of the kids is like, "You're such," says to me, "You're such an idiot." And I'm like, uh, uh, wh "Why do you say that?" They're like, you can't even explain it. Like Optimus Prime, when he's in combat, obviously has all the sensors. He's probably got twenty lidars on his head. I'm like, "Why twenty? Because ten might get damaged in combat." Um, and this led to a conversation about Call of Duty Modern Warfare and, of, and various other first-person shooters. Um, and these kids pointed out to me that in every single combat game that uh, you have at your disposal a wide variety of sensors because you need them uh, if you want to save your life. And it seems so obvious to them that you would never skimp 
uh, in a mission critical environment where mission number one is save life. So I was like, oh, you know, I, com- yeah, that's I a, that's completely. The answer. I'm done. That's like my new answer. Yeah, yeah, prime maybe, as, uh, yeah. I mean, Ed, maybe pave campaign should use a more game centric model. The next generation of customers will never, um, they would never skimp on sensors. Right. I, I think your pedagogical techniques uh, are something we'll be bringing to, uh, to some of our committees. That's, uh, I mean, that's good stuff. I love it. Well, so- <laughs> Yeah. Well, I do have a, I, I have a, I have a follow-up question that, to that though. This, this will be perfect. Um, is there, do you see a time when LIDAR won't be necessary? I mean, is there, and is there, you know, philosophically even a reason to pursue that, pursue a sensor suite that doesn't need LIDAR? Because there are folks who have pushed that. I'm not saying necessarily that it would be capable today, but there has been discussion about how eventually you know, five, 10 years, 15, 20 years down the line, cameras will have progressed enough that LIDAR can be removed. Have you given that any thought? I mean, is that a waste of energy and effort? Uh, so it, it is, you're right, it's totally possible that like in the future, the state of AI and, and cameras and the way we interpret these sensors evolves to where we can close that gap. Um, but that time horizon, I, I personally believe, is still very long because it pushes uh, already incredibly difficult AI challenges to a level that becomes like truly unpredictable R&D. Um, and it's uh, and again, um, you know, vision has historically had, you know, when you use pure vision with no you know kind of supplemental centers, sensors, it's had historically this property where you can get to like really high level of performance very quickly. But getting that like long tail of problems in the last fraction of a percent is just so hard that you're taking a giant risk if you're going to go all in and rely on this and have to ship something that's going to drive millions or billions of miles without any um, human supervision. And so uh, it's one of those things where like in 10 years or in 15 or 20 years, totally possible. Like we've had breakthroughs in AI over the last 10 years that have made things possible that we never expected. But even when those breakthroughs happened, it took another decade to fully utilize them and start to get them to production quality systems. And the bar is as high as it gets in autonomous vehicles. And so uh, LIDAR lets us um, bypass that risk and that delay by um, giving us better tools um, you know, to solve these problems. And again, it's not a perfect solution because you take something like rain and really heavy weather conditions, suddenly you have both cameras and LIDAR to start to have bigger challenges. And radar becomes a really fantastic sensor that potentially gives you um, a strong signal that can help you better uh, uh, better understand your capability set and where you're still safe and where you're not. Um, and so it's um, just like a lot of other problems um, um, that you can think of, it's not a singular uh, one-size-fits-all solution. Um, what we're looking for is a fusion problem where um, we have a number of different types of cameras, LIDAR uh, and radar, all in the same vehicles so that we can complement the weaknesses of some sensors with the strengths of other sensors and not limit ourselves. And in a lot of ways, it's almost like you think of like an, uh, a, mo- like an, uh, a mobile device, like a, a smartphone. Um, your goal is to future-proof it to where the hardware captures, even if you don't know exactly every single way you're going to use it, the hardware is there to capture all of the applications you would want for the next generation of use cases. And so there's still so much work to go on all of the long-tail problems uh, of autonomous driving that by having the full spectrum of all these sensors, we're future-proofing in some ways our ability to handle the surprises that we may not have even encountered yet. The um, 
I don't want to necessarily have this entire conversation about sensors, but um, durability is obviously an issue, uh, particularly with trucking, because you're not only going at high speed, you're going like potentially through various different environmental conditions, things like that. So where is Waymo in terms of progress on reaching like an automotive grade sensor suite? Yeah, very good question. This is, I think, one of the advantage of having gone through a number of generations of the sensor suite uh, for uh, the um, uh, ride-sharing business has actually helped a lot because we're not developing sensors for the first time for trucking. We're leveraging many generations um, uh, of these sensors that are uh, designed to be mass-producible and uh, and reliable uh, to a degree that actually allows us to ship a service. And so at the end of the day, uh, you're right, like sensors will always fail at some frequency. Everything will have some, some rate of failure. Um, and so this is... Uh, uh, this is one of the areas where like, I, I believe it's an advantage of Waymo because you can't – the complexity of thinking about the redundancy problem on both computing, a compute, as well as sensors, and frankly, as well as the vehicle itself, where you think about braking and steering and uh, and other physical capabilities – it's very hard to think of that when you're in the first or second generation of an autonomous vehicle. When you're on the fifth or sixth generation of an autonomous vehicle, you've already like gone through the iterations and learnings um, and analysis that allows you to know where to invest and how to invest in it. And how do you partner with manufacturers to actually build in that reliability? Um, and so uh, for every one of our sensors and our compute and our uh, underlying components within the vehicle, we have uh, both historical data as well as targets on the next generation of what sort of reliability we need to get to. And all of this is based on what feels appropriate for um, a vehicle on the road, where there's some things that can fail once every 25,000 miles, and there's other things that better not fail more than once every million miles, because that, the way you respond to it, even if it's safe, could be much more disruptive or visible um, uh, or poor from a um, uh, from a, a just value proposition standpoint um, for some cases versus others. And so uh, a lot of our approach is from the very beginning, not just to prove uh, the next step of capability, but to actually make it so that we're developing from the very beginning something that's meant to go into mass production and scale with the right unit economics and safety uh, patterns uh, that will make sense long term. So this is a good a good segue. I wanted to to ask you a little bit about sort of what is the the business opportunity that you're, you're looking at here. Yeah. Cause um, you know, I think a lot of times people assume maybe that like trucking is easier and that's why AV companies like to, to look at it. And, and I think you've done a, already a good job of sort of explaining how this is not, it's not easier or harder. It's just different kinds of challenges. So, so then, then, you know, just thinking through it, it makes sense that the reason Waymo is doing this is because they see a business opportunity and you just mentioned the ability to scale and all that. So I'm just curious, like, you know, trucking does a lot of different things. You mentioned long haul. Um, where where do you guys see the opportunity, both in terms of the kinds of routes and, and kinds of trucking that you're going to do? And then also sort of just where you add the value in terms of, is it replacing, you know, getting drivers out of vehicles? Is it providing more flexibility? Is it resilience? Like where, where do you see that value being added? Yeah, so trucking, it's interesting. It's like the trucking versus consumer case. Um, they, they have their own dimensions, right? Their, um, the value proposition is different for each and the things that are hard or easy are, are different for each. Um, trucking, I'm, I'm personally overwhelmingly excited about this application. And, uh, um, uh, and, and I, I think there's a lot of, uh, 
there's there's a path where this um, has, in some sense, almost an easier ability to scale into a large scale business than even the consumer side, um, because you have such a finer control of the environment that you operate within, and even like a single route like Dallas to Houston already has like like a billion dollars worth of freight that like kind of goes back and forth on you know just a tiny you know a, a, a tiny little route, and so you look at um, our the ability to whitelist the uh, the routes that you're able to deal with and the situations both on freeways and uh, surface streets you're able to deal with, you have more granularity of control on how you start scaling a business versus the consumer side where you genuinely do have to solve a city in order to um, uh, to open up a service. Um, on the trucking side, uh, it's um, there's, there's an overwhelmingly clear business case because you have, a, uh, you have an industry that um, uh, is the foundation of like the almost the entire economy uh, in not just the United States, but globally in terms of how uh, almost any good that a consumer touches has been on a truck at one point or another. Uh, and at the same time, you have a growing need uh, uh, and a workforce that can't, uh, uh, where there's a shortage of drivers to actually um, uh, fulfill that need. And so today there's a shortage of 60,000 drivers. That's going to grow to 160,000 within um, uh, within eight years or so. Uh, and it's actually uh, even worse, tougher than that, because it's one of the most difficult jobs that the new generation of people that are growing up now just don't want where the average age of a trucker is now getting above 50. And so you have, um, you're going to have an increasingly aggressive shortage of drivers over the next uh, several decades because the parts of this problem that are most suitable for uh, to get help from automation are actually the least pleasant parts of the job where you're kind of away on the road in a really unhealthy lifestyle um, uh, and you know traveling away from the family. Um, and so the value proposition is that um, in terms of uh, trucking to be able to make it so that uh, uh, so that you can have an autonomous truck without having to have a, a driver in that truck for a gradually increasing set of environments and domains, um, you saw you automatically uh, can completely reinvent the uh, landscape in a few ways, even just based on today's unit economics, that's a you know huge value proposition um, in terms of uh, companies uh, and, and the end savings that propagate to consumers in terms of the amount that can be saved uh, in terms of a cost of a truck. Um, there's a safety argument where uh, it's the number one work-related fatality rate of all jobs in the U.S. where you have, um, uh, you know, have 40,000 accidents a year in driving in general, 4,000 um, that are related to professional uh, truck driving, um, and then many, many more that are injuries and damage that's done. Um, you have constraints where uh, a truck driver can only drive 11 hours a day, um, and oftentimes there's constraints on supply and demand uh, where you're biased by where truck drivers live and where you can actually have a service. Uh, so you have length constraints. Um, and uh, and so you have an industry that has all of these inefficiencies. And in the end, you have like something around 50% asset utilization for trucks themselves. And uh, over a third of miles they're driven by a truck driver actually have an empty uh, uh, empty trailer in them. And so if you were able to create a versatility um, to where you could far more effectively meet supply and demand. Um, even at today's unit economics, you have like a, a giant value proposition that can transform the entire economy. But when you think about how you can take a level, go a level deeper and start rethinking 
how routes are laid out, where hubs are located for retailers and for um, uh, for shippers, uh, and how that can be factored into the next generation of uh, of logistics, where a truck can be driving for 22 hours a day instead of a far smaller amount. Um, you have the ability to completely rethink one of the most impactful you know elements of the economy, um, and so it's um, uh, it's something that from a safety, uh, economic impact, and quality of life standpoint uh, is pretty exciting because for every kind of shift, uh, you know, in where uh, the investment goes in this area, that on its own creates a huge amount of additional um, kind of uh, opportunity in the uh, kind of related economic sectors that can end up utilizing this or supporting um, these systems. And so uh, uh, I'm pretty jazzed. Like it's pretty rarely you see like a application that like kind of hits hits the mark both on the overlap of uh, just how interesting and complicated, uh, complicated and fascinating it is technically how much of a positive impact it can have on society. And then also how much of a like good business sense it makes. Um, uh, so all of these seem to align here. So a couple things to pull back. So taking all that into account, how do you see Waymo approaching its initial domain? I mean, what is that going to look like? And is teleops, going to be part of that, the, the sort of practical uh, deployment? Yeah. So our early um, uh, early testing with uh, with partners and uh, potential um, future customers, obviously, we're very hands on and we're managing our own fleet and uh, 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 and partnering together to better understand where the value proposition is and what are the highest value technical uh, areas for us to push on that'll most, you know, most help us get to uh, the commercialization path that, that we're on. Um, when we think ahead longer term, uh, uh, there's there's still a variety of uh, of questions that we're uh, that we have hypotheses on, but we're still answering around exactly how we think about um, the final value proposition and um, going hub to hub versus having some sort of a transfer hub model. How we partner with customers. Uh, there's an opportunity to have a really fantastic business model where we're in effect partnering with OEMs to uh, uh, to produce L4 capable trucks. We become the technology supplier, both of the hardware as well as the continued software uh, execution of those trucks. But they become owned by fleet operators, um, uh, both carriers as well as uh, uh, you know as, as well customers where. Uh, where they're able to leverage the improved capability of these trucks uh, and fit them into their fleets, um, but then uh, pay Waymo as a service to uh, uh, to be able to dr- uh, run the autonomy stack on these trucks. And so that's a model that we're like uh, actively uh, exploring and partnering with um, uh, with with these uh, uh, with these fleet partners that we're in discussions with. Um, in terms of uh, you know how that's actually executed, inevitably what's going to happen is that. Uh, we are going to have a really uh, rigorous uh, evaluation system of what are the domains that we are comfortable operating with full L4 autonomy in and what are the ones we're not comfortable operating in. And over time, that's going to expand both on freeways as well as surface streets, where the prior experience from Waymo allows us to stitch together freeways and surface street functionality in a way that probably is uh, stronger than almost any uh, other company just because of the the historical experience um, uh, uh, coming from both sides. Um, what uh, and so over time, 
the the types of routes we're able to handle will continually increase, um, and that'll naturally scale with uh, uh, with our growth of kind of business and penetration into um, uh, into different um, uh, fleet partners and also uh, different kind of segments of uh, of routes we'd be driving on. Um, in terms of how we would actually solve these problems, um, uh, we've made a pretty conscious decision as a company in terms of teleoperation, where anything that is um, safety critical. Uh, and time sensitive has to be handled uh, on board the car. And there's a specific reason for that where uh, um, you uh, you are often driving in such a time sensitive uh, uh, situation, for example, 65 miles an hour on a freeway, that if somebody cuts you off or something falls off of a car in front of you or there's a giant surprise, um, you cannot rely on a particular uh, you know, human response that's remote and may have latency and may have challenges in terms of uh, connectivity that's out of your control. And you have to have the ability to safely respond to anything in real time because the long tail on these challenges is just too complex to fully capture on something remote. Now, we do have uh, remote fleet assistants and remote operators that are there to help us almost as like traffic control, where we can ask them questions that are less time sensitive, where we have, a, for example, on a freeway, we have a construction zone uh, far in front of us that uh, we are encountering. It's complex and the road changes in a very um, aggressive manner. We feel like we have the right answer of how we navigate through it, but we have 10 seconds to ask an operator uh, to validate that we truly um, have, have found the right answer so that we can be 100% confident. That's a scenario where we use a remote operator, but we will not have somebody that's actually physically driving a car um, because that's just too complex. Um, well, one way to think about it is that if you were to um, understanding which situations you're able to handle with 100% reliability versus which ones uh, uh, are complex enough to uh, give to a to remote operator, if you had 100% confidence on that problem, the evaluation problem, that's almost as hard as the um, like full autonomy problem itself, because understanding where you're failing is actually almost as difficult as like finding the solution uh, itself to begin with. Uh, and so this is a situation where um, we have a fundamental requirement to be able to safely handle every situation, even if that means gracefully failing and stopping in a very reliable fashion. Um, but we will leverage remote operators in order to deal with less time sensitive um, questions. You know, do you do you see the uh, this space uh, scaling? You you've already mentioned scale a couple of times. Do you see it scaling faster than the robo taxi business? You mentioned some of the the reasons why there might be an opportunity there. Um, the, the the reduced complexity and the amount of, of of money that can be made on just one route, for example. Um, you know, is, is that something, and, and again, it's also not consumer facing, so maybe we won't have the same public expectation that's happened around the robo taxis and, and the lack of understanding of what does scale mean and what does, you know, how, 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 you know, ubiquitous does self-driving cars are here sort of mean and that, and that kind of thing. So I'm just curious, or how do you think about, about scaling um, relative to the taxi business? Do you see outstripping it or same sort of pace? Yeah, and I certainly think it's uh, like it's a possibility, and it's a really smart kind of parallel investment because we're getting so much leverage on the existing technology stack that um, that to open up another gigantic industry like this is uh, is a huge, obviously a huge value to Waymo. Um, uh, 
but it's still obviously there's a lot to uh, uh, to learn before that's like you know something we can say concretely. Um, what I would say is that it's not necessarily the, that trucking is easier. Um, you can start showing progress faster, but the long tail of challenges is still very hard because um, you're driving 65 miles an hour with an 80,000 pound fully loaded truck. Um, the burden on failing uh, gracefully whenever something goes wrong is much higher. Uh, the requirement to deal with complex construction zones that you can't um, escape like you can on a surface street is higher. Weather conditions um, can impact you much more unpredictably than uh, in a city where you have much uh, uh, kind of tighter ability to estimate um, what's going to impact a particular ride or not. And so there's um, there's additional challenges there. But uh, what makes me really optimistic is that freeways do have a higher degree of structure that's that is uh, consistent across the U.S., where there's a higher degree of leverage that we can get from testing on freeways in you know, Texas and Arizona and California and New Mexico that should carry over more broadly um, across other environments. And we've already seen that um, to be the case in a lot of our testing. Um, and when it comes to surface streets, you have the ability to much more intentionally whitelist which environments you're going to handle for particular routes and which ones you're going to avoid, even if that means taking a uh, intentionally slightly longer route in order to um, better fit within your envelope of what you can currently handle. Um, that's a pretty, pretty big advantage for trucking. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, Waymo's already shipped a driverless service in, uh, uh, in Arizona and just pulling a safety driver out of a seat is a gigantic step function in complexity. Uh, and so obviously there's a, time advantage that uh, in terms of Waymo's investment there that's going to carry over into other areas. The nice thing is, is I think that um, these aren't independent challenges. The more we make progress in one, it carries over really well into the other. Uh, and the hope is that by working on both, we actually get both to market faster than we would otherwise. Have you read these columns by uh, our friend, Stefan Sels Achmach? Um, <laughs> I can't pronounce it. I can't pronounce it. Um, who was uh, the founder of Starsky Robotics, who, who wrote several entertaining and controversial columns about the the metrics business case of autonomous trucking have you read them uh i have uh yeah he's a uh, uh he, he's definitely a, a character I had a, I had a beer with him a couple maybe like a month or two ago uh it was a fascinating conversation now uh, you know with him where uh yeah so he was talking about the um both the metrics of autonomous driving and also a little bit about a discussion on um uh, the path of ML um, inside the space. Um, so, uh, yeah, here's, a, here's what I'd say. I mean, you're probably asking about, um, you know, his argument that um, the approach that they were taking at, at Starsky uh, and the model of teleoperation, um, uh, what sort of margins that provides versus other approaches. Uh, you know, what I would say is that we've, um, you know, just like any business model, uh from the point where you like come up with uh, analysis and the metrics uh, going into uh, kind of development of a space versus what you end up finding, uh, you know, down the road, uh, those details can change pretty drastically. Uh, and usually you get surprised, uh, you know, kind of to the negative that there's actually a lot more complexity and costs that pop up than, um, uh, than what you would have expected. Uh, you know, personally, uh, you know, we've done our own analysis and we feel pretty strongly that the business case for uh, L4 trucking is actually tremendous uh, and that without actually getting to L4, you're not going to be able to capture a vast majority of it. Because if you think of the requirement of having, if you even take aside that what we talked about in terms of the risks of using teleoperation and the way that, um, uh, that Stefan intended, and you just think about the intention of having a fully dedicated uh, 
uh, driver remotely um, for a truck, uh, you end up having somebody who has to be incredibly well trained. Um, that has to be on all the time. Uh, the cost of that is reasonably high, and we know that even for our remote assistance cases, um, the training is sufficiently complex and requires such a rigor that um, that's not just a call center, um, you know, sort of operation. That's a incredibly specialized uh, and robust kind of training requirement that needs to, uh, you know, that we need to meet. Um, and at the end of the day, like I think it's also a safety risk because um, you know there's a lot of studies where um, if you approach these problems as an L3 problem where you're autonomous most of the time, but you have a safety driver that's just kind of like there to help out once in a while, people get complacent. Um, and that tiny fraction of a percent where something jumps out at you and um, uh, and somebody cuts you off or something sh truly shocking happens uh, on the road, um, it's very dangerous to rely on a human operator to be on 100%. Um, uh, in those situations. And again, you end up working your way right back to the requirement that if you really want to have something that operates for billions of miles, you have to have the ability to handle all situations safely on board. Um, and so personally, we just, uh, uh, I think the, uh, the business case becomes far more promising and frankly safer if you're able to get to L4 autonomy. And it doesn't feel to us like there's a path otherwise um, uh, to really solve this problem. Uh, Stefan from Starsky also talked about the difficulty of defining safety metrics and conveying um, that's why safety matters and uh, to investors uh, that they he claimed they just didn't care or want to understand. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, uh, I don't necessarily agree with um, uh, investors not caring or understanding safety. Uh, you know, to us, it's probably the number one priority uh, that. Uh, just embeds itself in every single uh, workflow that we have inside of Waymo. And um, it's uh, one of the biggest topics we talk about because at the end of the day, um, it's a single biggest blocker to going driverless. Um, there's plenty of uh, companies that can show uh, you know, super cap high capabilities with a safety driver, but to actually pull somebody out of a driver's seat is a, is a pretty big deal. Uh, so to solve that, uh, uh, I think this is another area where Waymo, just because of its experience and having 20 million miles of of actual autonomous driving and 15 billion miles in simulation, there's a rigor that um, Waymo is able to embed into this uh, and quantify safety in a way that I feel like you genuinely can't until you have that level of experience. And so there's um, there's safety events that happen once every uh, 20,000 miles uh, that you have to be able to handle. And there's things that you won't even see until you get to millions of miles because they're that rare. Um, and having a framework to be able to actually quantify the risk that compounds from all of these different areas and actually be able to measure when you feel like you are at a level of capability um, that is sufficient um, is frankly probably one of the biggest trade secrets that, that Waymo has. Uh, and the combination of how you specify the requirements in the beginning, how you think about simulation and evaluation, and how you actually go about testing it, and not just in physical miles, but in all of the permutations of ways that you might be able to simulate failure cases with higher levels of creativity than what might happen on the real road. Um, you can actually treat that as a science. And that uh, that's actually probably one of the most impressive things inside of Waymo, where um, every type of safety condition you can imagine across both cars and trucks, um, there's thought put into it and there's an appreciation of the what can be quantified and what is uncertain. Um, and at the end of the day, um, you'll never be able to um, argue to a uh, exact uh, um, 
you know, exact numerical definition, but there's enough of a science to it where with statistical confidence, I think uh, you actually can turn safety into something you can prove. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think there's no way to get to full L4 autonomy without being able to go through that. I, I hope listeners noted that that you just said something that was really fascinating and, and makes a lot of, of stuff that's happened in the past make a lot of sense, which is that the ability to quantify safety is like one of, I think you said that, I want to make sure I get this right. There's one of Waymo's core trade secrets in a way. And and it just, as soon as you said that, it reminded me of taking the first uh, driverless ride, uh, Kirsten and I in, in Arizona. And like my biggest question was like, you know, what was it that that allowed you to, what gave you the confidence to like get a, a human out of these, these vehicles and operate fully driverlessly? And it was so hard getting an answer out of it. And I think what you just said, you know, helped explain that. And it's really true. And I think It'll help people understand what this development process is like, that it's so important that quantifying what safety is, is like core to this technology. Yeah, that's right. Do you, do you think though, that this, what is now a trade secret will eventually be something that will be so important that will be, that Waymo will share um, and encourage others to, so that there will be a standard for quantifying how safe is safe enough? I think that's inevitable because before we get uh, wide scale comfort uh, with consumers to embrace this technology, um, the burdens on us to prove to them uh, on why we've gone through that level of rigor behind the scenes to where, um, you know, we're thinking about every permutation, what might happen and we can prove that uh, to, uh, to people that this is a, uh, a safe experience, um, you know, beyond like any reasonable, um, you know, human standard. Uh, and so I think that, uh, not only is it valuable for consumers, inevitably, I feel like uh, uh, somehow quantifying that safety bar is going to become part of a standard that from a legal standpoint, um, uh, uh, autonomous vehicle companies will be held to. Um, and, you know, in some sense, like this is uh, um, th- this is something that we like actually, uh, you know, our biggest worry is actually that somebody else will take a shortcut and do something, you know, silly that doesn't that that didn't involve that level of rigor and have an event that actually sets the industry back um because there's a you know kind of a, a backlash um that penalizes the whole space because of uh one company's actions um and so i think you know waymo ends up taking a um overwhelmingly conservative view to this where um you know by the time we're comfortable actually taking a step like this um, we're trying to be many, many, many steps ahead so that it's beyond reproach, um, where all of the work that's gone into it is massively defensible. And eventually we, we end up obviously having to convey that externally as well. Hold on a minute. Hasn't that event already happened at least once, starting with the Uber crash in Tempe? And in the minds of the public, a number of the Tesla crashes that can be attributed to driver assistance like autopilot? Uh, you could, you could, you could argue that. I mean, it's, um, look, it's something that, uh, you know, nobody goes in intentionally trying to take risks, um, uh, and, um, you know, trying to cause a, um, you know, kind of an event like this. Um, and there's a mutual interest, uh, among all the key players in the space, um, to maintain a really high safety bar. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's an imperfect science. And, uh, um, and so it's, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, we are, you know, we have the, uh, in some sense, like the fact that Waymo is taking like a very, very long-term view uh, and is not trying to sprint to the next checkpoint or to raise the next round of funding, we can take a very, very 
safe approach to every one of our challenges and make sure that we don't take a single risk uh, on the road that we're not, uh, we don't feel like we're um, uh, able to fully uh, feel comfortable with from a safety standpoint. Um, you know, it's, uh, look, it's it, it's something that every company uh, thinks about and takes seriously. I think uh, all of our interests are aligned that we want this space to progress in a way that uh, we um, we don't do something that ends up setting the whole field back, uh, particularly given how much how many lives can be saved when this technology finally gets to large scale. Great. Well, if if folks want to like follow your progress or, or Waymo Vias or the trucking side of this business specifically, are there social media accounts, websites, um, places where they can go to uh, to get that information? Yeah, so uh, Waymo Via is now a uh, core part of Waymo. Uh, you know, straight on the website, we talk about it in our blogs. We're going to be uh, much more active in uh, conversations as uh, as we progress. Um, and then uh, uh, Waymo obviously has all of the uh, social media accounts where um, you know both uh, the company as well as uh, some of the individuals uh, uh, discuss uh, our progress in the space. Uh, yeah, I think these. Uh, you know, these next few years are going to be incredibly fast-paced and exciting uh, in these areas, and um, we're going to be much more active in uh, in talking about this uh, um, as a as a pretty huge part of uh, Waymo's long-term strategy. Great. Well, uh, Boris Ofman, thank you so much for uh, for making the time today. This has been uh, very illuminating. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Ed, uh, Kirsten, uh, Alex, thank you so much. It's uh, yeah, great to chat about this, and uh, um, yeah, exciting. Uh, uh, exciting to be talking to you guys about uh, the path ahead. Absolutely. And uh, we hope to be uh, uh, doing more on the trucking space uh, since it is clearly something that uh, uh, is really coming into focus for the autonomous vehicle space. So stay tuned for more of that on future episodes of the Autonicast. Hello and welcome to the Autonicast. I'm Ed Nieder. <laughs> Meyer. Off to a good start.